Later, guys. It's good to have you here with us for another episode of the I'm for a Podcast. I'm Chris McCoy, and uh, she is Gabby. Hey there, Gab. Hello. How's it going? Good. Welcome back. I have to say that while you were gone, the Phillies, your team and my team, went on a nine-game winning streak. They fired their manager, and that was all they needed to do. They should have done that like four seasons ago. That's true. <laughs> yeah, fire the manager, because at least in this case, it lit a fire under the team. And man, they looked so good. They looked, oh my gosh, they looked free and easy. They looked like they were enjoying playing baseball like they were kids again. And then it all came crashing down the weekend or the day that you got back from Italy. For our listeners who don't know, I was in Italy for the last 10 days. And I was getting a lot of text messages while I was over there towards the conclusion of my trip, asking um, if the Phillies would still be continuing that one streak that they were on once my plane landed. And I, I'm happy to say they did win two more games when I landed. However, when my parents touched down, they did lose their first game that day. So I'm, you know, mom, dad, guess you got to go back to Italy. So you sorry. Know, that's your generation. Blame it on the one before. That's just terrible. <laughs> I'm sorry. No, but you're right. You're right about that. I think it was your father and mother's fault. Mm-hmm. But we'll, we'll, we'll let it go because they're both Phillies fans too. We will. So anyway, they have reestablished themselves as winners as of the other night as we're recording this. Now, this is uh, the day before this is released. This episode 16 is released. So see what happens from here on out. Mm-hmm. But you and I have never really had a serious at least on this podcast discussion of baseball, we've talked, we've kind of whined about our team, but we never really had a serious discussion. And I got to say, we're really not going to do that again this week, but we are going to talk to somebody who played the game. This guy was both a hero and a goat. And, and when I say goat, I don't mean greatest of all time in Philadelphia. I mean, he was a, a goat. Was, was that a goat or a horse? I just did. I don't know, but we're going to leave it in. (laughs) Okay. Anyway, this guy not only got the team into the World Series because of his pitching, but he also lost the World Series because of his pitching. And uh, I guess if you're of a certain age, you know who I'm talking about already. Mitch Williams is going to be our interviewee today. Now, you totally missed the Mitch Williams thing because this, this whole thing happened in 93 and you were born a year later, (laughs) give or take. I don't know if it had the same sort of gut punch effect to you in the telling as you got older. Uh, But man, for those of us who lived through it, it was definitely a gut punch. And nobody felt that, I think, more than Mitch Williams himself. Like I said, he was not welcome in this city for a little while afterwards, even though he kind of hung in there. I don't want to give the whole thing away. Why don't we just Take a quick break, gather our thoughts, grab the rosin bag, and (laughs) come back and talk to Mitch. What do you say? I think that sounds good, but I'm going to get some sunflower seeds instead, I think. (laughs) All right, no spitting. (laughs) We'll come back and talk with the wild thing next on the Encore Podcast. Back on the Encore podcast here with uh, Chris and Gab and our guest this week, I got to say, first of all, that I was born in Philadelphia. I was raised in South Jersey. I spent 35 years, give or take a few minutes, working in Philadelphia radio. 
I grew up a huge Philadelphia Phillies fan, and I know you did too, Gab, right? I did. They're, they're the number one team for me in Philly, for sure. Exactly. You came along a little later than I did. <laughs> uh, but, you know, I've been a, a huge fan of the team. And this guy, the guy we're going to talk to this week, was a huge, huge part of that 93 Phillies team. You know, the team that had that amazing season and then went on to the World Series. Now, of course, as most of us know, they didn't come away as world champs that year. This man was instrumental in getting them there. And man, what a ride it was that year. He is the guy that then Chicago Cubs manager Don Zimmer said does everything 99 miles per hour. <laughs> Mitch Williams is our guest. Hey, Mitch. How y'all doing? Glad to be with you. We're very happy to have you here, man. This is a real kick for the both of us. Mm-hmm. I was really instrumental in us losing that World Series. <laughs> Well, <laughs> you got them there. You helped you get them there. Yeah. No, no doubt about that. There's no doubt about that. But yeah, it was unfortunate the way it ended. We all know that. I mean, that's got to be one of the bigger sore spots of your uh, career. Huh? Oh, yeah. Uh, I mean, uh, I just felt bad because I let down my teammates, my city. For anybody that doesn't know it already, this is probably the greatest sports town there is. So as a player... You want to give the fans here everything you can to cheer about. Yeah, a hundred percent. I mean, I think unfortunately we kind of get a bad rep sometimes, but the highs are high, the lows are lows, and it's just it's such an enjoyable ride being a fan. I mean, well, I can't that's what Philly is. Philly is just a big family. Yeah. I mean, they're going to fight. You're going to fight as a family. You're going to love as a family. You're going to hate as a family, and, and that's just how it works here in Philly. And as soon the sooner you realize that as a player that all the fans here demand is an honest effort. I mean, you can be really happy here as a player if you just go out and play the game the way it's supposed to be played. And I think that was the real strong suit of that 93 team. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, I mean, you guys were, you you ground everything out. I'll say this about that team that people will never believe or don't realize. We had some of the smartest baseball players there were. I mean, you stop and look at it. We weren't the most talented bunch by any stretch of the imagination. But that team knew how to play the game, how to run bases. We had three guys, I think, that walked over 100 times that year. So it was just great to be on a team where they knew and understood the way the game was supposed to be played. Some of those guys, Mitch, I mean, I'm looking at the, uh, I remember Dave Hollins, Mariano Duncan, John Crook, Darren Dalton, Kurt Schilling, Jim Eisenreich. Tommy Green, Lenny Dykstra, these guys, I mean, they called Dykstra nails. I mean, that was Kurt Schilling. I remember him with the, uh, with Boston bleeding through the sock a few years after it was just, I'm I'm still not sure that wasn't ketchup off a hot dog. (laughs) (laughs) Didn't look like blood to you, huh, Mitch? (laughs) You know, I just look like he spilled his snack. (laughs) Look, everybody knows me and Kurt don't get along. Yeah, <laughs> but the one thing I am always is honest. If I had a big game and I needed to pick a guy to pitch it, that fat guy would be the guy I'd pick because he knows how to. He knew how to pitch, that's for sure. Going back to Darren Dalton on this team, I would be remiss if I I didn't ask you about that relationship because my mom has loved Darren Dalton for as long as I can remember. Um, he was such a name in my house just because 
I didn't even see the 93 team and I knew about him. So um, I'd love to ask you just sort of about that relationship of catcher and pitcher. Dutch took it to another level because he wasn't just the captain on the field. He was the captain off the field. We happened to have a manager at that time in Jim Fergosi that understood the way players went about their business, that understood the way players felt on a day-to-day basis. Jimmy didn't manage that team. Jimmy wrote down the lineup. Hmm. Dutch managed the team. (laughs) And Jim was smart enough to understand that. And he still, to this day, the only true leader I've ever seen in a big league clubhouse was Darren Dalton. Yeah, I've I've just never seen grown men willing to just take what he says as gospel and fall in line. And everybody on that team did. We believed in our captain, which was Dutch. We listened to what he said, and we got to a place in 93 in the World Series that there is zero chance we should have been in. We didn't have the talent to be there. We were just too stupid to know when we were beat. (laughs) You said before that this team was a bunch of really smart players, and you've now complimented the leadership um, amongst the players. Did you not feel like you guys were World Series destined at the beginning of the season? I remember in 08. Just as a fan, I looked at them and I thought, you know, we have a good team here, but never did I think that they were going to go to the World Series. Well, anybody, we were picked to finish last behind the expansion (laughs) Miami Marlins. Oh, my God. We finished last in 92. We were picked to finish there again in 93. But what Lee Thomas did, Lee and Jim, they went out and found more baseball players. And Jim Eisenreich, Pete Incavelia. These aren't guys that you're going to look up and they're going to be in the MVP voting, but they're guys that if you're building a baseball team, you want to do it with guys that know how the game is supposed to be played. And that's exactly what Jim and Lee Thomas did. They went out and built a team basically in their own image. They weren't superstars, but they knew how to play the game. And that's exactly what they did. They went out and got players just like themselves. You know, you're talking about uh, Darren Dutch Dalton. Being the sort of, well, as you said, he was the guy who called the shots on that team in 93. Yeah. Did he have a desire to get into managing? Had, you know, unfortunately, as we all know, Darren Dalton is no longer with us. Do you think he would have become a major league manager? As sad as it is to say it, the game lost a bunch when Dutch passed away Mm -hmm. because he would have been an unbelievably good big league manager. I mean, just the way he carried, the way people fell in line behind him, they couldn't wait to be on his team. So you got to put a guy like that in the dugout that's in charge of everything. Yeah, you got a pretty good chance to win, even if you have subpar talent. Guys like Dutch can get the most out of those subpar talent guys. What's a favorite memory of yours, whether it's the 93 Phillies or just in your career in Major League Baseball? Probably my favorite memory with the Phillies. It would be a toss-up between Game 6 and uh, NLCS and uh, the walk-off hit I got that year off Trevor Hoffman. Is that that 5 a.m. walk-off? 4.41 in the morning, Dave. (laughs) Is that ball up on your mantle somewhere? (laughs) I have no idea where that ball is. (laughs) It just went into the night somewhere, never to be found. Yeah, I don't think they even chased it down. Was there anybody left in the stands at uh, that hour of the morning? It was unbelievable. There were people coming in at that hour in the morning because the bars were closing and no one at the Phillies game was charging anybody to get in that late. So there were people coming into the game at 3.30 in the morning. 
What was that like? Cause I know it was a double header. You guys started so late. I feel like I would have at that point insisted that the next game be played that next day, but you guys pushed ahead and started that game at what? One thirty uh, in the morning? We didn't have a choice. I remember it because my father had just flown in from Portland, Oregon that day. So he flew all the way across the country. My wife, took my stepmother and sister back to the house after the fifth inning of game one. And my father stayed. Well, the game didn't end. I didn't pitch in game one. Game two, I sat there. Game two started at one twenty in the morning. And I went up to my father and I said, well, at one o'clock, the game one ended. I said, well, we're starting game two at one twenty. He said, you're starting at one twenty. I'm going out to your truck and sleeping. <laughs> When I came out at 6.30 in the morning, he was asleep in the back of my truck. And he said, well, what happened in game two? I said, ah, nothing. I said, I, I got the win. And I also had a walk-off off Trevor Hoffman to win game two. And he, he thought I was lying to him. You didn't miss anything, right? <laughs> that was the only at-bat I got that year. And he was asleep in the back of my truck. <laughs> I remember your pitching style. Your, uh, your friend and uh, Cubs teammate, Mark Grace, said that you... Uh, and I thought this was appropriate. He said, Mitch pitches like his hair's on fire. There was a few times there where I thought you would actually light your hair on fire, Mitch. You would deliver the pitch and fall off the mound towards on the third base side. And I always thought, man, if this guy gets a hot shot down to the corner, he's going to get clunked. That's how it happened once. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I fell off right into it, hit me right in the head. Do you still keep in touch with uh, with your old friends? I haven't those? talked to Gracie in a long time. Yeah. Yeah. He's out, He was out in Arizona. I think he just stayed out that way. He's one of those pretty people, you know, those West Coast people. Oh, yeah. Well, you should know about that. You were born in uh, California, weren't you? Southern California? Yeah, and I was kicked out. Yeah. <laughs> I, was not I was not pretty enough to be on the West Coast. <laughs> Can we talk about baseball in particular? We Let's start with this year's Phillies team. Have you been watching? On and off. But well, yeah, I've, I've seen them. And I know what kind of team they got. They made the right move of firing Joe Girardi, yeah. as much as I hate to say that, because Joe's a good friend. And But his managing style does not play here in Philly. It doesn't, in my opinion, it doesn't play anywhere in the big leagues, just because you cannot schedule days off for your bullpen and be successful. It, can't, it doesn't work that way. The way he handled the bullpen, there's nobody down there that even knows what their job is. I mean, you got a closer that you say you can't throw three days in a row. Well, then he's not a closer. A closer is a guy that walks in there every single day. And mm -hmm. if it's his job presents itself, he's ready to perform it. That's what I don't get about the game. The paying guys more than they've ever paid him in their life and asking less. And that I don't understand. I was going to say, were pitch counts a big thing when you played, I mean, for the starters? Well, let's put it this way. I got taken out of a no-hitter in the minor leagues. In the fifth inning, I was losing 2-1 to one with 155 pitches. Wow. <laughs> wow. I hadn't even finished the fifth. So they didn't worry about pitches back then, pitch count. It's how you throw them. It's not how many. Mm -hmm. It's how. And if you're mechanically right, that's all a pitching coach or a manager has to worry about. Are his mechanics sound? If his mechanics are sound, it doesn't matter how many pitches he's thrown because the human body is not a machine. There's some days you're going to wake up and only be able to throw 50 pitches. So this 100 pitch count they have on you, you wake up, you don't feel good, your mechanics are shot after 50 pitches, but they say, well, he hasn't uh, reached his pitch limit of 100. So they're going to let him throw 50 more pitches with bad mechanics and risk injury. 
That's why the pitch count is stupid. It makes no sense. If the human body was a machine, then the pitch count makes sense. It's not a machine. I've definitely noticed over the last couple of years that we hear more about this pitch count, about how, especially the beginning of the season, a lot of pitchers are being set with these limitations. And I think back to old times where, you know, these things were not coming up in the times of Cole Hamels, Roy Halladay, people who were pitching very high, but like you said, pitching well with their mechanics. Right. And I mean, those guys, they never went more than 120 pitches. Mm -hmm. And Nolan Ryan, you go back to Nolan, he's 170, 180 pitches in a game. It just honestly, and he only pitched until he was 46. So Mm -hmm. this is what I don't understand. Girardi didn't even give his bullpen guys an opportunity to get on a roll. Trust me when I tell you this, confidence is the number one thing you have to have as a reliever. Mm -hmm. And the only way to get that is from your manager. He keeps running me out there. I'm going to keep going out there and doing my job. You don't think about I've thrown three days in a row. I've thrown four out of five. I threw 12 out of 13 one time. Mm-hmm. So it honestly, if you, you have a pitching coach that knows how to teach the mechanics of the position and a manager that knows how to handle a bullpen, that job is simple. It really is. You find a seventh and eighth inning guy, a left-handed seventh and eighth inning guy, and a right-handed seventh and eighth inning guy. Then you have a closer. Those three guys are eligible to pitch every single day. And if their job doesn't arise that day, they don't pitch. That's what the other guys in the pen are for. And this is the problem with, especially here in Philly, Joe just could not find a way to make the bullpen work because he was trying to stick to that sabermetric crap. And you just can't, you have to manage a game going on in front of you, not the 2 million games that have gone on before you. Manage the game in front of you. And Joe didn't do that. You can see that. He had his head in that notebook the whole game. His players would do something good. Joe wasn't shaking their hand and celebrating. He was down there in that book. And you could see as soon as they fired Girardi, it was like they took their foot off the collective neck of the players. It was just that blatant. It stood out that bad. For those of you who don't follow the Phillies, they just concluded a nine-game win streak after losing, what was it, I think, 11 in a row prior to that. It's interesting, I think, that you bring up the word confidence, because I feel like I've been seeing that a lot from the pundits, the papers, um, saying that the young guys and the, the bullpen and the hitters didn't feel like Jordy had confidence in them. So is that the biggest change that you've seen on this team? Or do you think that there's been other developments that have kind of changed over the last two weeks? The biggest change to me has just been the manager. (laughs) And honestly, it's like those guys could breathe again. When they fired Joe, it's like the whole team was like, oh, geez, relieved. And that is a bad situation. If your players are relieved that you got fired, Mm -hmm. I don't think one of them wanted him to get fired, but I can tell you there was 25 of them that were relieved that he got fired because Joe is a great guy. Mm-hmm. Don't get me wrong about that. I just don't agree with his managerial style. Do you have any interest in being a coach? I've always had an interest in it. Mm-hmm. It's just no one has an interest in hiring me. <laughs> that one makes the... it hard to get a job. <laughs> yeah. That's true. <laughs> Believe me, I, I know what you're talking about. For 35 years in Philly radio, there was a point where I couldn't get arrested in this town. So I had to go out to California to make a living. So I, I, I hear that. I think one of the things that, and I think maybe you, you, you might feel the same way too, is that Joe Girardi did not give the young guys a fair shot to establish no. themselves and get that confidence going. Joe set the, every young hitter on this team 
The way Joe Manage was set up to fail. It's like with Mickey Moniak right now, he's struggling at the plate. Mm-hmm. You have enough offense right now that you need defense. You can hide Moniak's bat until he gets heated up. Joe never gave him a chance to get heated up. And you have to with young players. Back in 93, when we brought Stalker up, we brought Stalker up his first game. I blew a save. We played 20 innings. So his first game in the big, big leagues, he played 20 innings at shortstop. But he knew if he went 0 for 6 that night, he was starting at shortstop the next night. And that's how Jim ran it. And that's how you have to do it with young guys. You have enough veterans on that team. Put the young guys in there for the excitement, the enthusiasm, and then have those veterans get behind them and give them confidence. That's how you do that with with young guys you're trying to work into a lineup. But you have to put that same lineup up on the board every day. And Joe just didn't do that. I mean, he handled his lineup almost like he handled the bullpen. Think about last year. I believe we started off 4-0 and last year. And Joe gave JT and Reese the day off. I remember. Oh, no. Yes. Yes. I'm like, are you, you don't give days off in the middle of a streak. Mm-hmm. And it, to me, it just set up the entire way Joe was going to manage here. After the first four games of 2020, I'm like, you're giving your starting catcher a day off in the middle of a four-game winning streak. No, that's not how it works. But Joe wasn't an everyday player. So you got that, too, that you have to think about how he looks at things. And I just don't think it's the right way to look at him. And I think this team has shown since he's been fired that, yeah, it it was a situation with the manager where things were not working well. Do you know uh, Rob Thompson at all? Do you uh, have any experience? No, I don't. I actually thought it was Robbie Thompson, the second baseman for the Giants. Him, I didn't know because I played against him for years. But different Rob Thompson. Well, and Tom- I guess it's Tom and not Tomp. That's right, Rob Thompson. No P. <laughs> no yeah, P. Yeah. No P. He seems to have the uh, the mindset that you're talking about, especially with the younger players and getting them established and letting them roll, putting them out there every day. You're starting to see what Bryson Stott is capable of doing. Yep. I think Moniac, he showed in spring training. He's going to have to show he can hit a breaking ball because he couldn't hit a breaking ball with a bow door right now. But <laughs> the only way that you can do it is just leave him out there. The more he sees it, the more he'll adjust to it. Mitch, let's uh, let's talk about Major League Baseball and what's going on. And, you know, one of the things that bugs me is some of the, I have to be honest, some of the changes that they've made, like, for example, in extra innings, putting that zombie runner on second base mm-hmm. just seems to me like why why are we doing it i'll tell you what they'd have a hard time giving me a loss with that guy on second base i mean it's an unearned run mm-hmm. they say if he scores an unearned run well that's not baseball putting a guy out there that didn't earn his way on is not baseball i i could not disagree more with the rule changes that have taken place that running over the catcher taking out the middle infielder at second base on a double play They've essentially eliminated the two most exciting plays in the game. Mm. And the part that really bothers me about the catcher and running over the catcher or blocking the plate, there is no rule that says you have to block the plate. There is no rule that says you have to run over the catcher. But if the situation presents itself, then it presents itself. You can't take that out of the game. I agree. I totally agree. I think that a lot of the excitement is being taken out of a sport that tends to be uh, at at best, past, at, well, I was going to say pastoral, <laughs> but okay. Well, you know, boring. I mean, you can go to a game and I've already done, it's been my experience going to a game 
and realizing that I missed an entire inning of what was happening on the field, either because we're talking with people around us in the stands or we're walking around. Everything now seems to be, we understand that the game is not as exciting for especially young people as it could be. So let's have all kinds of distractions along the way. And exactly. Yeah. And I think that kind of, that really takes away from, for me, the purity of watching a baseball game. Well, the problem is the guy that's running baseball, Rob Manfred has publicly stated he doesn't like the game. Well, when you get a guy like that in the commissioner's seat, he has the ability to change the game in a lot of bad ways. And, And we're seeing that baseball is at its most unpopular right now. He can't get kids interested in the game. The running joke is any fan out there that thinks that Major League Baseball wants to speed games up has no idea what is going on. There is no way Major League Baseball wants the games to go by faster. It takes away from advertising dollars. It takes away from the concession stands being open longer. Trust me, they want the game to go as long as possible. If they truly wanted to speed the game up, there would be a pitch clock. That's the only way to do it, where it's not going to interrupt the flow of the game, that you'd never know about it as a fan. That's how you know they don't want to speed the game up. If they did, that would the pitch clock would have been put in place 15 years ago. I have to ask, when you were drafted, did you have the windup already perfected, or was that something that came over your time through the farm system? The way I followed through and ended up that bad because I tore my posterior cruciate ligament back in uh, 1990. Oh. And they gave me a choice to have it fixed and reconstructed. I missed 18 months is what they told me, which I can't believe that long. But Or I could just get on uh, a quad machine and build my quad up to take the place of ligament. Well, that's what I did, and I pitched 30 days after I tore it. So, But I never, ever had it fixed. So I would get to a certain point in my delivery and my front leg would collapse. I'd either have to put my glove down or land on my nose. (laughs) You know, I I remember seeing you. uh, I don't know whether Gabby knows this or not, but we took her father out to uh, Chicago before he got married. And we went to a Cubs game at Wrigley Field. And uh, guess who came in that game in the ninth inning? Yeah, it was Mitch Williams. And we had heard Uh about it. We had heard about this guy called the wild thing prior to that. And we got to see the real deal in person that day at Wrigley. I mean, being at Wrigley, first of all, for us Phillies fans was just such a special treat because that is a church. Wrigley Field is a church as far as I'm concerned, church of baseball. Speaking of church at Wrigley, my first game in the National League with the Cubs was opening day of 89. And I had the pastor and his deacon at the church, Harry Callis and Whitey, Richie Ashburn. Oh. I came in in the eighth in that game. We were leading 5-4 with guys on first and second. And I had to get two outs. So I got two outs. Came in. I had to hit because Zimmer didn't double switch when he brought me in. So I was due up and I had to face Bedrosian. I hadn't hit in five years. So I came out and Bedrosian threw the first fastball so far by me. I think I swung at it on the way back. <laughs> so when I figured out that I wasn't going to catch up to him and that at bat, I drag bunted and I put down a perfect drag bunt. 
No and kidding. Bedrosian, <laughs> they didn't tell me he won the gold glove the year before. He dove, fielded it, threw me out from his knees. And now I had to go pitch a ninth. And the first three guys in the ninth got broken bat singles. So I was sitting there with uh, bases loaded, nobody out, and Mike Schmidt coming up with a one-run lead. Mm-hmm. Well, I ended up striking Schmitty out, and then the two guys after him I struck out. So I struck out the side with the bases loaded. That was my first game for the Wrigley fans, and it could have gone really ugly had I blown it. But <laughs> since I got out of it, it went pretty good. <laughs> I think I read somewhere that uh, you have uh, the distinction of uh, getting a save without throwing a pitch. Is that true? And how did that happen? Uh, I got three saves in the big leagues with never getting the hitter out. Okay. I got brought in with uh, in a safe situation, which means a four-run lead with the bases loaded or two guys on. And I came in three different times and just told them, look, first pitch, I'm going to throw a fastball up and away. Second pitch, we're going to pick the guy off second base. And that's what we did. Three different – once I got a guy, I got Jeff Huson from Montreal. That was in a big game. He came in to pinch run in the ninth, and I picked off behind him and ended up ending the game at first base there, and I got two at second base. Two pickoffs at second. <laughs> yeah, 36 in my career, I think. You, so you, you had a good move then. You, yeah. You really did. Yeah, I, I always be- believed if you can get an out throwing it to a guy that ain't holding a bat, you've got a better chance of getting them out. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I always worked hard on my pickoff moves. And I, I see left-handed guys today, and I see them throwing out of a slide step, and it just infuriates me. Kind of going back to when we first started chatting, you were talking about how um, the city of Philadelphia has a – let's say very notable relationship with their players where it's like a family. I want to like really applaud you for the fact that I know fans were probably not kind for to you for a while there after what happened with the world series, but now I you're very much still integral into the story. And I feel like, you know, the relationship is, is nothing more than admiration at this point. That being said, I wanted to ask you because I feel like recently we've had a lot of athletes who maybe are facing the same struggles that you did, um, a Ben Simmons, a Carson Wentz, if you will, um, who sort of didn't get anywhere near probably what you did at the time, but really just sort of gave in, packed it up and left. I was just wondering if you have any like opinions on that, because I feel like you had the firsthand experience. So, you know, you would know best in this situation. Well, my opinion on guys like Carson Wentz and and Ben Simmons, they're a disgrace. And that's it putting it as honestly as I can. Carson Wentz demands a trade here in Philadelphia and then doesn't speak for three months, runs and hides Mm -hmm. for three months and doesn't speak. He was done in Philly as soon as that happened. The fans of Philadelphia demand honesty, an honest effort, be honest in your evaluation of yourself. And Ben Simmons and Carson Wentz were two of the worst self-evaluators I've ever seen. Because they honestly think they were doing good. And I just don't think that anyone can do as poorly as they were doing and not realize it. So that just tells me you had two guys right there that were never going to be honest with the fan base because they they couldn't be honest with themselves. Mm -hmm. And that's the fastest way out of Philadelphia. Do not give an honest effort. Don't be honest in what you say. That's a really quick ticket out of town here in Philly. 
Well, Mitch, uh, it's been a real kick talking to you. Before we oh, go, let me, just, let me just say that I don't, I, to this day, I don't blame you for that walk-off home run game six of the 93 World Series. I put the blame squarely on Joe Carter of the Toronto <laughs> Blue Jays for crying out loud. He's I put it on Incavillia. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> if Incavillia would have been playing higher, we'd have got him out. <laughs> you're, you know what you're you're a real kick to talk to and and to this day as a gabby kind of alluded to you are still in my opinion a fan favorite here in philadelphia mm-hmm. because you did give it all you left it all on the field every time you went out there that's the only thing i've ever wanted to be remembered for mm-hmm. that every time i took the ball the pe- people that paid money to watch me play the, they got every single thing I had in me that day. Mm-hmm. The rest of it, awards, championships, or lack thereof, it doesn't matter to me. If I'm remembered as a guy that gave it everything I had, that's all I care about. And I think you are. Truly do believe you are. Listen, uh, just to, to close it out, what are you doing these days? And is there anything you want to plug? I am a partner at Raymond Transportation uh, Corporation. We're a freight brokerage company. So I've been doing that for six years. The Raymond brothers have been absolutely great partners. So that's what I'm doing now. Jason Freight. I'm retired 47 years in radio. I'm really not doing anything. Every day is Saturday for me. So I give you a lot of courage, credit, I should say, for uh, for keeping on, keeping on. I'm sure you're bringing that Mitch Williams style mm-hmm. with, to what you're doing now with the freight company. Oh, to trucking? You know I am. Yes. Yeah, we're all over the road. <laughs> Thank you, Mitch Williams. It was, a, again, a real pleasure talking to you. Yeah, thank you so much. Yeah, you guys, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. And you guys have a great week. You too. You too. Wow, so what a cool interview that was, I think, for both of us as big Philly fans, don't you think? Absolutely. Yeah, just loved talking to Mitch Williams about stuff. One thing I definitely noticed was just how reverently he talks about that 93 team. And he even talked about some of his teammates that he doesn't really care for and doesn't get along with. And even still, he just talked about what a good group it was to have on that team for all those different reasons. And I find that to be really special when you are a fan of something and you find out that the people who did something memorable for you are all taking that moment and each other as seriously as you do as a fan. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And you know what I, what, what came through for me with Mitch and I, I didn't tell him this and I told you this Mitch, I actually worked with him briefly at one time. This was back in 2004 when I was working at B101 in the morning with Tiffany Hill, Tiffany and I were on a judging panel with Mitch Williams for a, it was kind of like a Philadelphia version of American Idol. You know, it was a local singing contest and it was uh, broadcast on Channel 17. And I think it lasted two weeks, if I recall. I was going to say they let you judge a singing contest. Yeah. It's <laughs> <laughs> <Isn't> that crazy. <laughs> I mean, Tiffany could sing. You know, not, not, not Nobody not. in our family can sing for the listeners. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But, you know, even though I can't sing, I know a good. I know a good singer. When That's I fair. Yeah. So uh, Mitch came in at the very end, sort of the finale when we got it down to like, I think three people and uh, he was on the panel for the finals. And I, I remember thinking back then 
you know, this guy, what I, I think what I liked about him then was he was not afraid to give an opinion about something other than baseball. And man, I'll tell you what, he's not afraid to give opinions about anything from based on, <laughs> on what we just heard there for the last, what, uh, half hour, 40 minutes. And that's, that's what I like about him. He's still mm -hmm. passionate about baseball. And you asked him the question and, you know, would you like to be a manager or a coach? And he said, yeah, hell yeah, I would like to, but I don't think anyone would have me. <laughs> and that's kind of a shame, mm -hmm. you know, in a way, because I think he would probably be a pretty good baseball coach. What do I know? That's my impression. Yeah. You? Yeah. He seems to understand the professional game in a way that some people don't have. Mm -hmm. Maybe Mitch will get an opportunity to do just that in the future. Yeah. I guess if, if he pursues it and, mm -hmm. uh, and someone gives him a shot. Yeah. Maybe, maybe as a result of this podcast, I doubt it. <laughs> But anyway, you're right, Gab. That was a lot of fun. It was. Uh, thanks for setting that up for us, for everybody. We hope you enjoyed it as much as we did. I guess we'll see you next week. We're going to have to figure out how to top that one. <laughs> I did have the Pope on the line, but uh, <laughs> he, apparently he's got a problem with his knee or something. Uh, <laughs> conflict next week, huh? We'll see you next week for another episode of the Encore Podcast. Thanks for listening. 